Let's go and open our Bibles to Acts chapter number 14, Acts chapter number 14. So I am going to be preaching my Sunday morning message. Um, I've had to do a little juggling around with the missionaries because uh, I schedule them and then they, they con contact me and say, oh, we can't come on that day. Can we do a different day? So I've had to change, change the order of, of messages that I've planned on preaching. But Acts chapter number 14, we're going to be finishing out the chapter here. We, last time we looked at the ministry of Paul in Iconia and Lystra, and we looked at the fact that we, or we talked about, we dealt with the issue of worshiping the preacher. That's kind of the background, because here in, in the city of Lystra, Paul and Barnabas come in, they give the gospel, and everybody is in, enthralled by, by the message, not really the message, but by these people, and they assume that they are the gods. They, they assume that they are uh, Jupiter and Mercury, and they begin to worship them. Now, that's kind of the background, and that's, that's important, because when we get to verse number 19, actually, let's, let's go back just a little bit, uh, verse, number, verse number 18, <clears throat> I'm in the wrong chapter, that's why, okay, <laughs> so chapter number 14, verse number 19, I think is what I need, 
It says, And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing that he had been dead. So here we have in one moment, they're worshiping him as gods. These guys are the gods come down in human flesh. Let's offer sacrifices to them. Let's worship them. But then when Paul and Barnabas do what they should, what they should do, they come in there weeping and, and rending their clothes and, and telling the people, why are you doing this? We are merely men. It's, it changes things, you know? That's, it's kind of like a violent emotional up, upheaval that's going on. And so instead of worshiping them, now what do they do? They kill Paul, and this is the first, or they try to kill Paul. And this is one of the first passages where we see that Paul is, uh, his life is, is, they make an attempt to take his life. And it says here in the text that having stoned Paul, they drew him out of the city, supposing that he had been dead. Now notice here, it doesn't say he was dead. It just assumes that they thought he was dead. He was to the point that anybody who was watching would have assumed Paul has died. Then in verse 20 says, Howbeit as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. So we have what could be called a miracle. It still is a miracle because he's on death's door, and and he just stands up and he goes. This phrase that talks about the disciples stood round about him. I actually had an interesting study with this word because the idea behind it is that they surrounded him in a defensive posture. Okay, so like, um, I'm trying to think, uh, like military, you have kill circles. You ever hear of those? Okay, everybody surrounds each other. They're in a circle. They're, they're all uh, with their guns pointed out, facing against the crowd. Well, the disciples have surrounded the body of, of Paul and they are, they are trying to protect the body as it is lying there. But then Paul rises up and he goes into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. And so in these stories of Iconium and Lystra and even Derby, we don't see that Paul is able to spend a whole lot of time there, right? I mean, they just tried to kill him and he has to leave. And what, what you are left with are newborn baby churches. And I want you to imagine a scene that unfortunately does happen in real life. I wish it didn't. But imagine a young mother who's grown up on the wrong side of the tracks. She's in an abusive, low-income family, and she's pregnant. And her boyfriend leaves her the moment he finds out, but she decides she's going to deliver that child, but she doesn't know what she's going to do with it. And she brings the child to term, and she delivers it, but then she leaves it on the doorstep of a church. Has that ever happened before? Yeah, it has, right? But that child, that baby right there, if nobody ever came and picked it up, what would happen to that baby? Kids, what would happen to that baby? It would die, right? Because it is left without protection, without nourishment, without, uh, without the care that it needs to grow up and to be a healthy baby child. So the child could grow up physically, but they wouldn't flourish the way that God wants them to. Now here's another scenario. Let's say baby's out on the steps of a church and a gang member comes and picks him up, okay? Is that baby going to survive? Yes, it will. Okay, so maybe, maybe. So, okay, yes. But is it going to have the type of life that it ought to have? A normal, healthy, stable life, being raised in a gang. All I can think of is Oliver and Friends, right, from the cartoon? Okay. So, you know, but no, he's not. He's going to be raised in an unhealthy environment, but... And so he may grow physically, but he's not going to be able to flourish the way that God has designed him to flourish in normal life. Now, seeing people who experience new birth 
is an amazing thing, right? To see Christians who, or to see people who get saved for the very first time. Those people are excited, they're wanting to grow, they're hungry for the word of God. And that just seeing that experience should excite all of us. Jesus said in John 3, verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The miracle of human birth is only surpassed by the miracle of spiritual birth. But so often in our churches, newborn Christians and newborn churches are left to grow and to develop on their own. I think uh, if we parented the way that most of the time we interact with, young, with people who just get saved, um, our kids would be crazy, okay? Because so, the way, way we interact with people who have just gotten saved or um, young churches that are still growing is we act the way that we should and hope they'll catch on someday. Is that a successful way to parent? To just model parenting for your child and never teach them, never um, educate them, never discipline them, and never help them to grow into the adults that they need to be. If you just model it for them, will that work? Anybody? No, it's not, okay? So, because we are all desperately wicked. All of our hearts want the wrong things. And we're going to go our own way without correction, without guidance, without nurturing and nourishment. And so if we parented the way that we approach new converts in churches, our kids would be crazy. But just like children who need parents to parent them, churches need to be parented. Most likely, Paul spent maybe a couple months in uh, the city of Iconium. But Lystra, maybe a day, you know. And then Derby, he spends a little bit more time there. But in all three of these churches, they are newborn baby Christians in a hostile environment to their faith. What just happened to Paul? He'd just gotten, they tr just tried to kill him, right? The, the people of, the, of these cities are hostile to the Christians. And so this chapter completes Paul's first missionary journey. And honestly, he could have taken a more direct route home, right? Um, if, you, if you look at where he is, he's up in Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey, and he needs to go home to Antioch. The easiest way to do that would just be cross over a couple mountains on land, and you're right there in Antioch. Just go this way a little bit. But what does he do? He travels back around this way. He goes down south. He goes to the islands, and then he crosses and comes all the way back up to Antioch. Now, why did Paul take that return journey home? To Antioch. I think it's because Paul knew that healthy Christian communities needed to be strengthened to stand strong in the face of opposition. These are baby churches, and Paul was not going to just leave them on the doorstep and hope that some kind stranger would come along and help them out. He wants to make sure that they are as healthy and as strong as they can possibly be, especially when you look at the type of culture that they were going to have to live in. And let's, let's look at verse number 21 here. It says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch. Now our key text here is going to be verse 22, which says, Confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. 
So Paul travels back through these same cities where he had just planted churches, places even like Lystra, where they had tried to kill him because he wants to confirm the souls of the saints. Now, when you hear that word confirmation or confirm, what comes to mind? Mary, you should know this one. Philippines has uh, Catholicism as their state religion. What is confirmation? You guys are silent today. <laughs> it's okay. Confirmation is basically where they take the kids and they try to teach them the basic truths of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church, right? Now, I'm not advocating for Catholicism, but you know what? There is something positive about what they do. They're trying to actively teach their children their faith. Now, in the Greek text, there are four words that are translated as confirm throughout the Bible. The one that Luke uses, and he only uses this word in any of his writings, is episterizo, which means to lean upon or to prop up. So I think of Luke when he first blew out his knee, okay, and playing volleyball. He's lying there on the ground going, oh, oh, okay. So how did he get out of the building? He had to lean on somebody. Actually, we pretty much had to carry him, okay? So, but we, he leaned on us to get support, to be strengthened, because he had a weakness that he needed to have strengthened up, okay? And a, a good formal definition for this word is to strengthen believers in their commitment and resolve to ma- remain true in the face of troubles. And it is, this word is translated elsewhere as strengthen in Acts chapter 18, verse 23, But as we look at the ministry of Paul, this is going to be a focus that he has. We're going to see multiple times in the book of Acts that Paul goes back through and he tries to confirm or strengthen the churches. And I think one of the weakest ministries in churches oftentimes is this ministry of discipleship. We've talked about mentoring in the past. So winners lead people to the Lord and then they just hope that they'll grow on their own. But Paul was a little bit more proactive about helping new converts and new churches be healthy and growing. So even churches that aren't brand new, like how long has this church been around? 30 plus years, right? Is this a brand new church? No, it is not. But even churches that have been established need confirming. They need strengthening. In Revelation 3 verse 2, the same word is used of the church of Sardis. says, be watchful. And strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. A lot of times, settled churches can slowly drift over time spiritually. We can lose our mooring. We can, we can forget who we are and why we are doing the things that we are doing. And we can drift into compromise. We can drift into apostasy. And we can become something that we didn't intend to become. But tonight we're going to ask ourselves, how do we strengthen the churches so that they can be healthy churches? We want Harvest Hills Baptist Church to be a healthy church, okay? Well, how do we know what is healthy? If I were to pull Emma up here and and she only weighed 25 pounds, would we say she was healthy? Emma, go ahead and stand up so everybody could see you. If she only weighed 25 pounds, would you say she would be, be healthy? Yes? No. Okay. So, no, something would be wrong with her. What if her hair was falling out in patches? What would we conclude about her? Something's wrong, right? There are signs within churches that something is unhealthy. There are also signs of health. If you have 
um, a, a kid who is a good strapping young man like, let's say, Joshua, okay? So he's got muscles, he's tall, he's growing facial hair. No, okay. So <laughs> we look at him and we think, Joshua is a healthy young boy, right? Okay? We know he is healthy by looking at certain features about him. Now what we want to ask ourselves is how do we know a church is healthy? Is it healthy just because it's done the same thing for 30 years that it's always done? Is that what determines health? No, because as we saw in the Church of Sardis, things tend to drift off over time, right? So we're going to look at three different points that show the, the marks of a healthy church. There are actually ministries that deal with this topic as their, that's their main ministry. There's a ministry out there called Nine Marks, and they have a list of the nine marks of a healthy church. Well, we're going to look at three of those today that are found in this text right here. Three of, the, three of the marks of a healthy church. In verse 21 through 22, says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples. So the first mark of a healthy church is that there is preaching and discipleship. Notice, what did Paul do when he went to these churches? He taught them. He taught them things because we need to learn what the Bible says. We need to learn how to apply it to our lives. That doesn't come naturally. A healthy church is a church that is saturated with Bible preaching. Not just, okay, we, we just drove by Life Church because we live right beside it. And they're going through their new series. Anybody, anybody hear this series before? At the movies? Okay. That's their theme. They're going to take, Christ, they're not even Christian movies. They're just going to take movies and, de, and develop a Christian movies. Is that preaching the Bible? Is that preaching the word of God? No, it is not. There might be good things in movies to pull out, although I, I really question um, most of them, okay? So, but it is not the word of God. What you guys need in your lives is not the movies. It's not even good movies. It is the word of God, and we need to have a church that is saturated with preaching and with teaching, and uh, another aspect to this is one-on-one -on -one relationships where we encourage each other with the word of God. I think most of the time churches become country clubs where we like to hang out, maybe shoot skeet together and uh, enjoy a dinner. And those things are all good, but we don't spend time encouraging each other in the word of God. We need, we need to be helping each other to grow spiritually and ministering the word to one another. People don't just magically know how to do the right things, right? A baby, does it know how to do algebra the moment it's born? Aaron, do you know how to do algebra? No, you don't know how to do algebra? Why don't you know how to do algebra? I mean, come on. Now, babies don't know how to do algebra. Young kids don't know how to do algebra. My daughter doesn't. No, okay, she's not here. So, the kids don't naturally know how to do algebra. That's something you learn as you get older, right? But sometimes when we have new converts come into church, we assume they should know everything. They should know how to act. They should know what to believe. And when we see that they don't know how to act and they don't know what to believe, we're like shocked. Wow, what, what just happened there, right? But that's not natural. That's not the way things work. Young Christians, babies, they grow. And the only way for them to grow is to be taught the word of God. There has to be a teaching ministry. Now, what is it that we need to be teaching them? In this text, I believe, first of all, Paul was teaching them assurance of salvation. Notice confirm, confirming what? What are they confirming? 
their souls, right? Confirming their souls, making sure they know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, giving them that assurance of salvation. 1 John 5, verse 13 says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. God wants us to know that we are saved, that our sins are forgiven, that we have eternal life. And the way that we get that is by believing on the name of the Son of God, placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people who show interest in the gospel and even in Christianity, but they come short of placing their faith completely in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And they need to know for sure that they are saved from their sins. I actually spoke with a woman ago who came in and actually she messaged us on the website and she said I want to be baptized okay well I'm not just going to baptize anybody okay so I scheduled to have her come in for a meeting and we began talking about this but one of the first things I wanted to know is are you saved do you know Jesus Christ as your savior after I went through the plan of salvation with her it became pretty evident that she was not she was one of those people who says I pray for God to forgive my sins every day. Have you ever heard that before? What, what does that type of a statement indicate? That they have not come to a point where they have fully placed their trust that he will do what he said he will do, right? If I constantly beg my wife to feed me every day, okay? Katie, please feed me. Okay. So, but if I constantly ask her to feed me every day, what does that, what does that betray about me? that I think she's not going to feed me, right, okay? I don't trust her to feed me. And, and a person who is constantly asking Jesus to save them over and over and over again every single day, it typifies, in most cases, that they honestly haven't come to that point where they have finally placed their faith in Jesus Christ to save them. Hebrews 10, verse 10 says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, how many times? Once for all. So Jesus died one time, and that payment for our sins took care of our sins how long? Forever, for all, for all of time, for all of our sins. So Paul wanted to confirm them by teaching them to have an assurance of their salvation. He confirmed the souls of the disciples. But also I think he was teaching them the basics of the Christian faith. We'll, we'll see this backed up in just a second here. But the basics of the Christian faith. We should be teaching young converts what the Bible teaches about God, what it teaches about Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Bible. They should know things like the Trinity. I know that's a weird concept to try to explain, but they should know it. Um, we, they should know the uh, inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth of Christ, the substitutionary death of Christ. They should know about biblical authority in their lives. They should know about the two ordinances of the church. Why do we practice the Lord's Supper and baptism? They should know about the, the two offices of the church. Why do we have pastors and deacons? What, what about individual soul liberty? They should be learning how does a church function and what is my role within this church. <clears throat> they should be learning how to minister. And the list could go on about the basics of the Christian faith. But there is a lot that we need to be teaching people. And we can't just assume it's going to naturally happen because they watch other people doing it. We need to be teaching them the basics of the Christian faith. But here's one, the basics of living the Christian faith. How many new believers know how to live a holy life before God? 
And I think sometimes we're afraid to teach on the basics of living the Christian life because we're afraid we'll be accused of legalism on one side, or we're afraid we're going to step on somebody's toes, right? But the new believer needs to know how to live the Christian life in the power of the Spirit and not by legalism, because to be honest, legalism is the easiest lesson to teach, and you can do it without teaching. You do the right things, and people are just going to assume, oh, these are the things I need to do. And so they teach, they, they learn legalism naturally. So you've got to go out of your way to teach them. The Christian lives his life not in the flesh, not in his own strength, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit. And that, that, is, that is where our strength comes from to live our Christian life. They need to know what God's moral expectations are. Do you think the average college student today, if we were to go down to OSU and witness to them and, and show them about Jesus Christ and they got saved, do you think they're naturally going to come to the conclusion, I shouldn't sleep with my boyfriend? when they know tons of other Christians who are doing it? Is that going to be a natu natural thing for them to learn? No, in our culture, that, that can't be taken for granted. They need to know what God's moral expectations are for their lives and how God wants them to live their lives now that they are saved. These are all issues that at some point, they may get it from the preaching that I give up here on the pulpit. But how many years is it going to be before I cover every topic? Many years, right? Are we, are, we're probably never going to get there. We're not going to get there, okay? So we're not going to get there. And so that's why we need to be more purposeful, one-on-one -on -one teaching and training young Christians about these types of issues. The pulpit is good. Preaching from the pulpit is good, but it is not enough. There needs to be a plan in the church to actively be teaching new Christians and new members some of these things if they are going to be as healthy as we can be as a church. If we drop the ball here, we're not as healthy as we ought to be, okay? So first sign is the teaching of the word. Second one is in verse 22. It says, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Now this one is encouraging them or if you want a, a proper title, it is biblical theology and I'll explain why. But the word exhorting means to encourage somebody, okay? When we think of encourage, though, what do we think of? We think of making them feel happy or making the pain go away. We think that is encouragement, and there is an element of that in encouragement. But encouragement is more than that. For the Christian, encouragement or exhortation is not an anesthesia to null the pain. It is a stimulant to excite us to the correct and proper action in our lives. As a Christian, my encouragement should be the type of encouragement that comes along somebody and says, hey, let's do this. This is, this is a good thing for us to participate. Will you join me? Will you help me? And, let, and, and I encourage somebody in doing the right thing. It isn't coming along somebody who has continually living in sin and saying, oh, it's all right, brother. God, God will just continue to forgive you. No, we want to encourage them to a right course of action. It is not an anesthesia, but a stimulant. The message that Paul gives is not one of those happy-go-lucky messages, is it? What did the rest of the verse say? In verse 22, that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Is this a happy message? Is this an, an encouraging, uplifting message? 
No, Paul is encouraging them, but he is not encouraging them just to be happy. He's not like that fish on the wall, don't worry, be happy, okay. That's not what Paul is doing. Paul is encouraging them in a right course of action in light of the fact that they are going to face tribulation. And he encourages them to do two things in this text. He says, first of all, exhorting them to continue in the faith. It is one thing to know the truth. It is another thing to continue in the truth. When temptations come, you will, face tempta you will face the temptation to deny the truth to get along. If people said, deny Jesus Christ or we're going to kill you, what's the easiest route to take? Deny Jesus Christ. If people came to you and said, you need to deny the Trinity or we're going to kill you, what would your choice be? The easy route would be to deny the truth, right? But Paul is telling them to continue in the truth. In our, in our day and age, there's one inconvenient truth, probably many, but there's one inconvenient truth that the world wants to stamp out, okay? We have a whole month dedicated to it. What is that? Anybody know? Yeah, you do. Okay. It's Pride Month, right? Okay, so the world puts pressure on us to say that homosexuality is a good thing because love is love. But what does the Bible say? The Bible is clear on this issue. This is not amb ambiguous. That homosexuality is a sin. God even calls it an abomination. And in Romans 1, he says those who do such things, he has given over to a depraved mind. That is an inconvenient truth because it causes problems every day in our lives. I'd love to go to Target, okay? Everybody else is boycotting Target. I'd love to go to Target, but you know what? Maybe I'm going to choose not to. I haven't decided yet because I don't go that often. Okay, so, but when you're at work, and Burger King decides to wrap all their sandwiches in pride colors. This happened while I was working there back in the day. Okay, what are you going to do? It's inconvenience. They want to silence our voice. They don't want us to stand for the truth. They don't want us to say what, what we think about the issues. They want us to be quiet. The world wants us to, and not just to be quiet, the world wants us to celebrate sin, right? They're not just happy with you being quiet. They want you to celebrate it. When the Bible uses the phrase, the faith, in this passage, it is most often referring to the doctrines that we hold as believers. There has been a departure from true doctrine in many, many churches. And it is now more cool to deconstruct your faith than it is to continue in your faith, right? That's, that's the hip thing to do, to deconstruct your faith. And the temptation is to deny the clear teaching of scriptures to be accepted by our peers. Now, there's a, there's a case study I can give you on, on how this has happened, even in our churches. How many of you guys know the name Billy Graham? Okay, You know this name? This is probably the most obvious case. Billy Graham used to be a fundamentalist. So that means he preached in churches like our church. Okay, And he was a well-known speaker. And he was a good speaker. He was a great guy. I have a lot of things to, good to say about Billy Graham. But there's one thing that Billy Graham did that was, that was completely not right. Billy Graham compromised his faith. Let's turn to 2 John chapter 1, verse number 10. 2 John 1, verse number 10. <clears throat> 2 John 1, verse 10. Uh, the books of 2 and 3 John are oftentimes dealing with standing for truth when there are false teachers coming into the church. And in 2 John 1, verse number 10... We are given some 
rules on conduct for the Christian. And it says in verse 10, If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Now, 2 John is about the idea of hospitality, showing hospitality to false teachers. Teachers who are bringing a false message, a false gospel. Specifically in the book of 2 John, they are teaching that Jesus is not come in the flesh. There were people who believed that Jesus was just a, a spirit that, had, that you could touch, but it was still just a spirit. He didn't have a real body. Okay? So he wasn't, he wasn't really human. And John says that these men are false teachers because they bring not the doctrine of Christ. And what were they commanded to do if this teacher doesn't bring the doctrine of Christ? It says here in verse 10, Receive him not into your house. Don't even invite him in, okay, to your house. Neither bid him Godspeed. So don't bring him in, give him a meal, and then don't send him on his way and say, God be with you and hope that, th and hope that things go well for him. Because he is bringing lies. He is bringing error. And he is deceiving people. It says in verse 11, For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deed. Let's turn to Galatians chapter number 1. Galatians chapter number 1. <clears throat> Galatians chapter number 1, verse 8 and 9. This is Paul addressing the church of Galatia. He says, but though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, than that we have preached unto you, let him be what? Accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Okay, so this, this is what Billy Graham did. Billy Graham saw that he could have potential for greater crowds, for more opportunities, and he compromised the gospel. Now the evidence of this is in, uh, I think it's, what's the year, 19... 46? I can't remember. I, don't, I didn't write it down. But yeah, 1957, after his Madison Square Garden meeting, Billy Graham noticed the Catholics were all protesting his meetings whenever he would go into the cities. And he didn't like that. He wanted all the Christians to be involved in his, in his meetings. So what did Billy Graham do? The next meeting, he reached out to the Catholic priests and he got them to join in and to promote his conferences. And then from that stage forward, anytime Billy Graham had an invitation who is at the front talking to the people to lead them to the Lord? It was the Catholic priests. Because he wanted, and, and others from other churches, but he wanted them to end up in the churches that they would probably go to anyways. And so in a way he was, and not in a way, he was compromising the gospel, right? What did Galatians say? If any man bring any other gospel, let him be what? Accursed. Is the gospel of the Catholic church the same gospel that the Bible teaches? No, it is not. The Catholic Church teaches you have to keep the seven sacraments in order to be saved. That is a work salvation. It is a different gospel. And so what is, well, how should we view these people who are preaching that gospel? They are accursed. We should separate from them. That word accursed, it literally means to set up or place apart. Okay, So separate from. And it is also used for the idea of excrement that is taking away. 
You adults know what I mean. I'm not going to define it for the kids, okay? But that's how we view it. A person who is accursed is like that excrement who is taken away. He is, we separate from it. We want nothing to do with it. We're not going to play with it. We're not going to hang with it. We're not going to um, enjoy being around it. It's taken away. And Billy Graham compromised the truth. But today among younger preachers especially and believers, it is very popular and is very easy to compromise in areas of doctrine and areas of practice. And Paul knew that these churches, if they were going to be healthy, they needed to stand firm on the truth. Wokeism is making its inroads into our churches. And many young people are willing to go to churches that do not preach the truth because they have entertaining services or they have um, activities for them to participate in. And so they're willing to compromise truth to get something that makes them feel happy. Paul's concern for these churches was that they not abandoned the faith in the face of persecution. So he challenges them to continue, first of all, in the faith. Turn back to Acts chapter number 14. Acts chapter number 14. Secondly, he challenges them to continue in the face of persecution or to endure persecution. He says in verse 22, and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Paul was basically saying here, tribulation is a normal part of Christian life. In fact, according to him, the tribulation is basically the gateway to the kingdom of God. The Jews at that time, they believed that before the millennial kingdom would be established, that there would, it would be preceded by a time of tribulation for the people of God. And the New Testament reaffirms this truth. It's not just a Jewish, Jewish truth. But a Christian who is truly living out his faith is at some point going to face opposition, whether it's soft persecution or hard persecution. <clears throat> I think if you know what's ahead of you, it's easier to bear it, right? Except at roller coasters. Okay, so, but if you, if you know you're, you're going to be eating a piece of sushi ahead of time rather than somebody sticks it in your mouth, you, if somebody just blindfolded you and popped a piece of sushi in David's mouth, what's David going to do? He's going to gag and spit it back out. But if we say, hey, David, I've got a piece of sushi, and he works himself up, and he actually puts it in his mouth, and he eats it, he might be less likely to gag, okay? So, right? Because he knows what's coming ahead of time. 1 Peter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, though some strange thing had happened unto you. Peter's like, when you have these things happen, don't be amazed, don't be surprised, don't think it's weird that this is happening because this is natural for the Christian. This is what it is like to live a godly and holy life in a pagan world that rejects Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 13, says, Instead of thinking strange, rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall re be revealed, ye may be glad also with ex exceeding joy. So don't think it's weird. Don't think it's strange. Don't be surprised by it when it happens. But rather rejoice when it does, because in, in partaking in the suffering, we are participating in Christ's suffering. We have something in common with him. We have fellowship with Christ in that he suffered. But also, we have or we will experience complete, utter joy when we see Jesus. 
I can rejoice in temporary earthly trials for my faith because I know that I will have an eternity of joy in the presence of Jesus Christ. So this church, first of all, they needed to be taught. They needed to be encouraged to stand firm for the truth and in the face of persecution. But thirdly, the third mark of a healthy church found in this, in this text is in verse 23. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. The third mark of a healthy church is godly leadership. Godly leadership. Luke says that Paul and Barnabas ordained, which means to appoint or install elders in every single church. Especially during times of persecution, the church needs leaders. That's actually one of Peter's messages in the book of 1 Peter. That's why he ends in 1 Peter chapter 5 with, the elders which are among you I exhort, who also am an elder. And he continues on and talks about pastors in the church. That's, that's why he talks about it. But pastors, leaders, they should be there for the benefit of their people. First of all, the, the leaders are there to protect the sheep from false teachers. Acts 20, verse 28 through 29 says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing, shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. This is what Paul calls the false teachers. False teachers will come in, and they will try to destroy the church. And so the elders are there to protect the flock from the wolves, just like shepherds do out in the field with their sheep. They've got their staff, not just to look cool, but to beat wolves over the head with them to, to get rid of those who would eat the flock. So the leaders should be protecting their people. They should also uplift their people when they are struggling. When I taught through Hebrews, this was, one of the, this was a big piece of what Hebrews is about. Hebrews 12, verse 12 says, Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. The leaders of the church should be the ones to come alongside those who are struggling, those who are failing. Those are the ones who need, who need to be strengthened, right? If, if I left Luke lying on the floor which was probably the easiest thing to do, okay? Luke probably would have died, okay? So, but no, we come along and we help those who are hurt. We help those who are struggling. We don't just say, shame on you for struggling. Shame on you for having knees that want to give up and quit because that's what's going on in this verse here. No, we lift up those people. We come alongside and we help them. So the leaders should be guiding the way, should be encouraging people in this. The leaders should also be the gu to guide the church in the right direction. 1 Peter 5, verse 1 through 3 says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who also am an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. And here's what he tells them. First of all, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. Okay, Oversight, it's the word, Greek word for bishop. But it's like being a supervisor. What does a supervisor do at work? They watch over everything. What is that? Nothing. Nothing? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Depends, okay? So at Chick-fil-A, the supervisors actually do most. Anyways, okay. So, but supervisors are supposed to watch over everything and make sure everything is working the way that it should. That is the role of leadership within the church, to provide oversight. 
In, uh, in Hebrews 13, verse 17, says, Obey them that have the rule over you, talking about pastors, and submit yourselves. Why? For they watch for your souls, as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. So they should be teaching and growing their people, be watching over the spiritual lives of their congregation, their flock. And that's for your benefit, to have somebody to come to you and say, hey, this is a blind spot in your life. You might need to think about this, and you might need to take steps to correct this in your life. Because to be honest, we all have blind spots. We all have areas where we think, oh, I'm perfect in this area, and, and you're not, okay? So pastors are there to, pr- to help us to grow, but they should also be there to encourage their people to serve God by doing ministry. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 12 says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. A pastor is supposed to be encouraging his people to minister to other people, to do the work of the ministry. There are churches out there that deny pastoral leadership, like the Plymouth Brethren, or one we know maybe a little bit better, the house church movement, okay? These churches don't believe in pastors, you got to stick your, ha- your head in the sand to come to that conclusion when you read your Bible. Okay? But he, even here in these very first moments of the Gentile church, this is Paul's first missionary journey. And what does he do at the very beginning? He establishes elders in every church. This story just shows us, one, you don't have to be saved for very long to become an elder, although you shouldn't be a novice, because how long have these people been saved? In Lystra, <laughs> not, not that long, right? But also it shows that ordination should be taken seriously because in this text it says that they they prayed and they fasted and they commended them to the Lord on whom they had believed. Pastors and elders are given to the church for the good joy of the church. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 24, this is a verse I just heard about and discovered. It never stood out to me before, but it's an amazing verse. Not for that we have dominion over your faith. So Paul's saying, we're not, we're not exercising as lords over you. We're not trying to have dominion over your faith. But our helpers, which is the word fellow workers, for your joy. Pastors and elders within the church, they have been given by God to promote your joy, your good within the church. That is part of a healthy church. When pastors and people are at odds, that church can't be as healthy as it ought to be. The pastors are to be involved in the work to be promoting your joy and your good. And honestly, when you think about it, sometimes the things that we think bring us joy aren't the things that actually bring us joy. Like you, t- you see a whole chocolate cake on the counter and you say, mm, that'll make me happy, so I'm going to eat it. Okay, what do you feel like uh, 30 minutes later after you ate the entire chocolate cake? Daniel? Sick, yeah, okay. It didn't bring you the joy that you thought you brought, that it would bring, right? But what if uh, Daniel comes along and says, you know what, you probably shouldn't eat that chocolate cake. Does it sound like his advice is going to bring you joy? No, but trust me, it will bring you more joy than eating that entire chocolate cake will. Okay, so, and so sometimes the message that we don't think we want is the message that we actually need. Imagine trying to give the kids a kiwi. Have you guys ever seen a kiwi? It's hairy, it's brown on the outside, it's green on the inside, a little bit slimy, but oh, it's so delicious, okay? So, but if you're a kid, what do you do to a kiwi? 
you stick your nose up until your parents force you to have that first bite, and then you decide, this is delicious, right? Because oftentimes we don't understand what it is that we really want in life and that what, what we really need. And pastors are to be working in the church to promote your true joy, your true good in your life. Paul knows that he can't personally stay with these people. He has to go and he has to minister to other people. In verse 23, it ends with these words, that he, they commended them to the Lord. Paul takes every step that he can possibly take to make these churches be as healthy and as flourishing as they can possibly be. But in the end, he has to trust God to do that work, to watch over them, because he can't be with them at all times. I can't go home with you and say, don't eat that chocolate cake, okay? I can't do that. You might need to do that for me. No, I don't eat chocolate cake. I don't like chocolate, okay? So, but I don't, I don't have that luxury. I can't be with you all the time, but God is. And God, God, God is the one that I have to commend you to and to depend on God to watch over you. So here's the application for tonight's message, okay? If we are going to have a healthy church, we need to have a church that is focused, first of all, on preaching and teaching the word of God, we need to have a church that is focused on encouraging one another to stick with the truth and to endure hardship. And we need to have a church that is led by godly leaders and elders within the church. If we are going to be the type of church that God wants us to be. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll have a time of invitation. <clears throat> As with many of these messages, this is what I'm asking you. Okay? I'm asking you to pray to God that he will make this out of our church, that he will make us like this. I'm asking you to pursue these things, to say, Lord, I want this to be us. I've mentioned this phrase over and over again in the past, be the change that you want to see in others. If you see a deficiency, if you see a problem, don't stand on the sidelines just throwing rocks and criticizing. Be the change. Encourage others to be the change. And let's be the church that God wants us to be. And, and honestly, remember this. No church is ever going to be perfect. But let's continually be striving for that goal. David, do you mind closing us in prayer this evening?